Welcome back to Revelation on Demand podcast, the podcast that is bringing you the revelation from the Bible. I'm your host, Justin D. Myers, and it looks like it's just you and me today. Seems like Chris had some things this weekend that he had to really get to, and uh, just didn't. He had some issues with his recording equipment, so we uh, we're here today, just you and me. Uh, hopefully, by next next time we record, he'll be back. But in the spirit of making sure you guys get this podcast on its regularly scheduled time. I am, well, a little bit later than regularly scheduled, I should say, because I'm still going to be recording at the time that it normally drops. So we'll be a little bit late today, but at least you'll get it today. And I think that's what is most important. So as far as updates go, I don't think there's much more to cover than that. Uh, I'm doing all right. Had uh, a few long nights this weekend, so that's another part of the reason why this episode's coming out a little bit late. Just letting you guys know that I'm dedicated to this and I want to keep seeing this through. So, last episode we finished up our study on oh, Amos, which was a pretty pretty good slog. We kind of figured out why it is that, uh, sorry about that, Jan. So we kind of figured out why it is that most people don't like studying Amos, and we've seen that uh, there was still a lot of good stuff in there to to learn about. There's a lot of things that Amos talks about that is really important to spiritual truth and how we go about living our lives today, especially in a world where uh, the majority isn't uh, God-following as we should be. So... Today, we're going to start Isaiah, which is one of the longest books of the Bible, uh, 66 chapters. So, as I've alluded to before, this could go on for two and a half years. Uh, let me know if you'd rather us, you know, take a break after about 22 chapters or something like that. And uh, we go look at other things and maybe do a whole another book between seasons of Isaiah and that, that could be a thing, or if you'd just rather us knock this all out, we'll keep going on a regular schedule and go to 66, and it's probably what I'm going to do if I don't get any response, so just letting you guys know where I'm, I'm feeling. Uh, of course, we still have our special episodes for Easter and Christmas where we talk more about the gospel and what it means to be a Christian in today's world, so... You can still expect our special episodes. Sorry about the yawning. I'm still working, waking up a little bit here. And like I said, we've had a really long weekend, so I'm kind of tired. But I will do my best to be entertaining today. And today we shall go over Isaiah. So, so what do we know? What the, what do we need to know getting into Isaiah? Isaiah's ministry spanned the reign of four different kings, so he was around for quite some time of Israel's history. Uh, I think it ends up to be about 60 or 70 years his ministry was going on, so pretty long time to be advising to an entire culture, an entire nation on what they should be doing to follow God and bring God's word to them. And we don't know much about his life, though most people kind of just place him as part of the the royal family in some way, like connected to the royal family. Uh, the book does allude to that he was a husband and a father, as we'll get into as we go on. And uh, we, we see that 
this he is a very very much acting as a shepherd of of Israel at this time. So he acted a lot like other prophets of nations. So he had access to the royal family. This is why some people just assumed that he was part of the royal court or, you know, kind of related to the royal court in some way, but he could have very well not been just been a very respected prophet. And that's why he has so much access to the royal court. So the first chunk of the book, chapters 1 through 39, really focus on his prophetic activity in Israel. And then the later half, 40 through 66, addresses the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. And we've talked a little bit about this, uh, especially when we went over... Oh. Wow, I'm drawing a blank. You're all screaming at the top of your lungs, I'm sure. It's, It's this book. Yeah, anyways... We went over that book where it really detailed, uh, Daniel, Daniel, there we go. Sorry, brain, brain had to get into gear there. So Daniel, uh, you know, really covered the time of the exile, really focused on Daniel's story during the exile. So uh, Isaiah also addresses the time of exile in Babylon. Now, we also got to remember this time of exile in Babylon was constantly, constantly happening and was, was a long it was a really long time that Babylon, you know, kind of harangued Israel and would take people from Israel into Babylon to to make part of their nation sort of thing or take as slaves. So this was a very, very big event and it was a big chunk of Isaiah's ministry as well. So there's three sections to this. The first section, 1 through 39, where God's judgment on Israel and nations. This is where he kind of lays out why this this judgment is coming to Israel and what there you expect. Oh, I'm so sorry I'm yawning. Ah, this this talks all mostly about what Israel's been doing and what they can expect because of the judgment and you know what punishment is going to be coming down. Forty through fifty five is the restoration and salvation of God's people. So this is where we're gonna see God calling Israel back to him and we see we see more prophets or prophecies and visions about how that's going to look and what people need to do. And then fifty six through sixty six the end talks more about the future of God's people, which is where this podcast likes to focus mostly on the future of or the end times sort of things. So that's where we're gonna get a lot of that is the end time stuff in those last ten chapters. Now, this first chapter serves as a summary of the vision, uh, or a summary vision of the rest of the book. So, kind of get an idea. We see the flow. There's, most of this chapter is dedicated to talking about Israel and sins, and it adds a little bit of talking about how they can, you know, come back to God and how they can be restored in God. And it talks a little bit about the future. So we have uh, it broken up in this first this first uh, chapter that we're going to read today. Now, this all occurred during the 8th century BC, which would have been around 700 BC. You got to remember that as we, when we were before Christ's time, uh, the years go backwards. So instead of the bigger number being uh, newer, the bigger number is older. So just keep that in mind when I'm throwing years around uh, that this is, that if it's progress of time, the years go down. It's counting down. Now, traditionally, yeah, no, I already talked about that. Never mind. Sorry. 
I move things around and don't move them on my sheet. Anyways, let's get into the actual scripture. Now, this is Isaiah 1. I have this broken up into three sections. We see that this is, you know, about twice as long as we've been reading in Amos. So there's twice as many uh, verses, but this is like twice as much for every verse that uh, we need to, that we could go over. So like I said before, we don't do the extensive in-depth look at it. I mean, there'd be hours on every, like beyond hours on every every chapter. Uh, we're doing as an in-depth look as we can muster in about an hour. And that's that's kind of our goal to, to whet your interest into studying further and to point out some of the more less known things, hopefully, of the Bible. So, starting off in Amos 1. Excuse me, I said Amos, I meant Isaiah. Anyways, Isaiah 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you he, he excuse me. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner, man, owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. I always love it when we start out light and cheery. So, we see in this section, uh, this is roughly around 722 BC when Assyria invaded Israel. And this is happening during Isaiah's lifetime, as we talked a little bit in the beginning, his ministry. Uh, we believe his ministry started roughly in 740. So, as I said before, 740 was before 722. Or 722, not 7D22. Excuse me. I'm a little tongue-tied this morning. Isaiah is bringing a formal charge against Judah. So the language used in this is more like a uh, kind of like a legal charge against Israel. This isn't necessarily anything to do with uh, being poetic. The language used would have been similar to the language used of someone taking someone to the court in Israel. And for this reason, it's because they are break. They have broken the contract with God. So, Isaiah is coming to Israel and saying, hey, I am calling you guys out on your breaking out the contract, and this is, I'm laying out my case against you. 
as we heard up there in the first section, he's he's very much skate Israel for the way they're behaving. So at the very beginning, it says, listen, you heavens and listen, you earth. And this is, uh, they were called in the time of the binding of the contract. And now they're being called to witness the breaking of said contract as again, this is alluding into that legal language that they're using. So God had raised Israel up and they rebelled against him as we, we seen that, you know, God was going to make Israel prosper and give them the Holy land and all that stuff. And here we see that they are, are breaking away and, and not following God as they were supposed to. So uh, God is, you know, saying you've broke the contract. Now you're going to pay the price for breaking said contract. Now, very much in the beginning there, uh, Isaiah is calling Israel dumber than an ox or or a donkey, for that matter, uh, as even an unruly ox knows its master and a, and a donkey knows its owner's manager. Like he's saying, these these very <laughs> stubborn and and unruly creatures still don't still know who their master is, and it's saying that I, Israel has completely forgot that. So this is literally Isaiah calling them dumber than. Oxes and donkeys, of course, is more eloquently put. It's very, very uh, cleverly put, I should say. Um, so, and then we see uh, Isaiah talk about God's holiness, which we're going to see a lot of. Isaiah was very focused on how holy, you know, ultimate good God is in everything that he talks about. So, this is just a little flavor where he talks about God's superiority and being the the one true creator and the one true God that that needs to be to be worshiped correctly and that, you know, he is truly a good God and that anyone who turns against him is, is really just signing their own death wish in Isaiah's mind. So we see, we see a reference here to God's holiness and then the head to toe. We've covered that language before we're in Amos where their talks head to toe, just like today, it means, you know, the entire thing from top to bottom. We see that, uh, that he's saying that all of Israel is guilty of, of committing these sins and, and forgetting who God was and, and where God should be, would, or should be worshiped. And then Israel, again, pulling back to calling them donkeys and stubborn is saying that Israel is too stubborn to get the help they need from God. And they're, they're looking in other places. They're looking in all the wrong places. And then we see mention of Zion daughter of Zion and stuff like this. And then we need to talk a little bit more about what Zion is. So Zion is the name of the chosen city of God's dwelling. Uh, pretty means pretty much means the, the, the city of God. So, uh, we see Zion is one of these titles. That it's very, very loose in association with an actual physical location. So we see that it kind of moves around. It's often, you know, the, this mountain of Zion where the place where God comes to. So Zion often is referring to the place where God is, is coming kind of in, in person sort of place. And then we see them call or be called daughter of Zion. And it's, it's continuing this parental metaphor where God's the parent and Israel is this wayward child that has, has kind of become prodigal or very much become prodigal and forgotten where they're, their sustainment comes from. 
And then at the very end of the section, we start talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, as we talked in Amos, any time that uh, you're being referred to as Sodom and Gomorrah, it's usually not a good thing, especially if you are God's nation and you're supposed to be you know, set apart. And of course, we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you ever listened or ever read uh, the ever read Genesis where God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah for their their very their various sinfulness and just utter neglect of following God. So, as a prophet, Isaiah was to bring this to God's people, and uh, we we he brings his own kind of flavoring to it. I'm not sure how much of this is Isaiah, as we've seen in Amos. There's there's times where you can feel like maybe Amos is is bringing in a little more of his own character and less of what God actually said. So we see here that Isaiah is getting these very clever kicks at uh, Israel and calling them, you know, donkeys and, and um, unruly oxes. So I'm not sure how much of this is, is meant to be directly from God and how much of this is Isaiah saying, just so upset that these people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And he's maybe letting, his own emotions kind of bleed through in his message that he's delivering from God. Uh, I'm not, I think when prophets do that, they often are, you know, righteously angry enough that they may bring some of their own emotion to whatever message they're bringing. So I think that's just a case of us being human in these very emotional subjects where we see just how the world is, is, is acting and we feel very strongly. Uh, we can, also end up bringing our own emotions to any kind of subject that we talk about, especially anything we feel strongly about. And we got to be careful with that, that we are still in the search of truth. Like I'm not saying emotions are bad. Emotions are good. They help us understand what it is. We're, we're, we're you know, under, understand ourselves and how we feel about a situation is important, but we got to make sure that we keep them in check and we're not just, you know, going off the handle for any, any good reason. So with that, we will continue in at verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we see hypocrisy in its glory. 
And we see that God is very upset with the people of Israel just going through the religious motions and doing the the very correct rituals they're supposed to be doing. But as as he says, when your heart's not in it, and we've talked about this before, when is when your heart's not in it, you're just doing a ritual, you're not you're not doing the ritual correctly. Uh, so we see that blood is a symbol of life. So he says Israel has blood on their hands. And of course, as we know, in this time, blood was a very sacred thing. Often the life was thought to be in the blood. And, you know, to a point, that is correct. Uh, so we see that he's very much calling the murderers in this in this section. And then offerings being trampled could have two meanings. Uh, obviously, the plain reading of the text very much shows that they are being very disrespectful in the fact that they are not doing these these rituals genuinely. And of course, he could also be referring to the fact that you know they're wasting these rituals on other idols or gods they could be worshiping at the time. And we've talked about this again, where. It was not uncommonplace when Israel started falling away from God that you find other idols to gods in the temples. So again, this could be one of those situations where Israel is bringing these other idols in and then offering sacrifices like right in front of God, basically, in his temple to another god. Like, and that's he that that would be very upsetting for anyone in God's position. So we see that they, the new moon, uh, one of these festivals, new moon, they did this because uh, not many people understood that the moon was not governed necessarily by a deity uh, in a sense, but the earth's rotation and the moon orbiting the, the earth so that that wasn't really known. So whenever the moon would go dark, uh, you know that'd be considered a bad omen, and then when the new when the moon came back to full strength or full power, that was something to be celebrated, and you know the the moon has returned, sort of thing. Now we he talks about Sabbath, and for those of you who don't know what Sabbath is, that's just the weekly break. Uh, it's often referred to as in Genesis, where God took a rest on the seventh day. Uh, this is where many people point to, you know, since he took a break on the seventh day, we should be taking a break on, on the seventh day as well. And they call that the Sabbath, which is just a, a time of rest. You're not supposed to be working. Of course, that doesn't include taking care of, you know, animals or children for that matter. Um, the Pharisees would get very, very picky about these things. You know, those holier than thou people. Uh, they would get very picky about these things and in like doing almost any work could be punishable by the, by this, uh, Sad or no, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. But, uh, we see that's not exactly what the Sabbath was meant to be. The Sabbath was just to be a, a normal break where you stop doing things you do every day for work and you just take a break. We, you know, have changed that in modern days where you get time off, you get a weekend, uh, you know, that's even changing to some point. Some people don't get a weekend. They get a few days in the middle of the week or something like that, or they get a break. They don't have to go to work. They don't have to do their normal things. They can do things that are restful and rejuvenating for them. And then it talks about the festivals, so again, like the new moon festival and stuff like that. There's three major convocations as 
is put up there. There's three major festivals or convocations that where all Israel is to gather and worship Yahweh as as one body. And that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Weeks. And there's more festivals that are included in this ancient faith of Israel, but these are the three that are, are meant to be like big all nation come together and celebrate these things all at the same time sort of thing. Now there's other major holidays like the festival of trumpets and the day of atonement and the feast of first fruits. These were all important uh, holidays in, in festivals, but they were less focused on, well, I guess they're, they're quite focused on God still, but uh, is often giving back to God, the things of, of, this world that we have worked for. Now we talked about the blood on the hands. This is talking about violence and not pleading the case for the, the widow and the orphan and just letting them to die. So this is God pointing out that they have, you know, directly been involved with this, the evil that's going on. So he's saying they are guilty of everything evil that's going on in Israel and then after this condemnation, we see a, a shift in the tone where God calls Israel back to him. Like he says, yes, I know you've done this. You are, you are terrible people for doing this, but come back to me. Like you, you can still come back, come back, please come back. You know, like God, God is still drawing people back to him, even though he is, he's just laid down this scathing, you know, like you guys have done all this terrible thing, but I still love you. Come back. Like, so we see that God's grace is, is always, always present whenever we bring about, or whenever a prophet brings about uh, condemnation and just this tearing down and, and pointing out all these terrible things that they've done. So we see that still Isaiah is calling people back to God. And there's a verse up there that says, let's argue. This is going back to that legal language that was used in the very beginning. So again, he's very much still bringing this as a formal case against Israel. And then we see that when Israel's, and we see this over and over again in the Bible and the Old Testament, when Israel is obedient to God and follows him faithfully and does everything that he wants them to do, then we see that they are blessed. They usually have a time of prosper. They tend to get, uh, you know, better. They, they live, live better lives when they're in right relationship with God. And then as soon as they start to disobey, things start going downhill and uh, sinful things and evil things start happening in their nation. And God is saying that they're responsible for this because they've stopped following God. So when he says at the very end, so Yahweh has spoken, kind of signals this trans this transition from accusation to lamentation. So we'll see in this next chunk where it uh, starts out with a lament from Isaiah himself. So this is you know he's his his anger is cooled at this point, and now he's he's lamenting. And I've I've noticed that in my own life, where I'd get angry about something that I see that's unjust, that's not right, or something like that. And it's gotten shorter, but soon thereafter, it would turn from you know righteous anger or being upset about something to a sadness where 
it's a lamentation of the situation where I feel bad for the person in the situation or whatever that has upset me. And I feel bad because, you know, maybe they don't know God or maybe they're not living their life according to God's word, you know, and it's, or they're, you know, ruining the, or they're reaping, I should say, reaping the benefits of what they've sown. And it's, it's hard to see sometimes and be like, well, if they just would have made a better choice before they, they wouldn't be in this situation, you know, it, that's, that's the kind of lamentation we are, we are going to go into where Isaiah has brought the scathing rebuke of Israel. And now he's, he's going to be showing a little, a little sadness on, and of course still offering Israel to come back to God. And as we see over and over with Israel, that God is always willing to have Israel come back to him. So, we will carry on in verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders in days of old, your rulers as the, in the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder, and his work a spork. Both will burn together, with no one to quench the fire. So as I was alluding to, this is a section of lamentation, a uh, different tone than the first two sections. This poem is a lot like the Mesopotamian city lament literature at the time, where divine destruction of a city is mourned as a righteous thing. You know, it's one of these sad things that has to happen. And we see that, you know, God's like, you can still come back, but those who don't like, this is what's going to happen. So again, it's brought up that they're not taking care of the widow and the orphan, like they're called to. Uh, this is a very, very tough thing, especially back then. You got to think, you know, today we have a lot of things that help single moms or widows and uh, children who are orphaned or you know just children in general. We have a lot of these programs that help those people. Back then, it wasn't the case. Uh, if a man died and left his wife and children or a child was, you know, left, you know, parentless, they were often kind of cast out to the very edges of society. And of course, since the man was the provider of the family at this time, that would leave a widow or orphans completely bereft of any way of getting the things they need on a daily basis. So Israel 
being the you know the the nation of God was to take care of these people to take care of these people who couldn't otherwise take care of themselves because there was no such thing as uh, you know equal equal rights between men women and children uh, arguably there's still not equal rights for children today but we do take very good or very good we do tend to take care of those people who are bereft of society and of course Israel has been ignoring this so this is being called up again against them and we see the mighty one of Israel. This is a variation on a more common title. It was called mighty one of Jacob. It's just pretty much one of these titles that fit us into, uh, you know, God's plethora of titles. Uh, this one is pointing to how he is the almighty God of Israel. Uh, and that of course, as if you know, the story of Jacob, Jacob is the man who was renamed Israel after his time struggling with God. So, uh, this is just, a variation where Isaiah is pointing towards Israel, you know, instead of necessarily being Jacob. And of course, uh, Israel in its name means to struggle with God. So this could also mean, you know, you guys are the ones who are struggling with this. And of course, as we've seen in the history of Israel, they struggle with God quite a bit. So he, God is talking about his enemies in this one. So he, he leaves that space open where it's like, Hey, come back if you want. If not, this is what's going to happen. And he starts talking about those people as his enemies. So this was the people he's chosen who have fallen away, who are doing evil, terrible things and are unrepentant. They are now God's enemies. And that is not a title I would ever hope to achieve. Um, this is, you know, a complete shift in, being God's chosen, God's people, and all of a sudden you're on the wrong side of that. And I just, I thought that would be scary, very scary to me. So this judgment is to reset everything to a right stage. Uh, like he said, those who are repentant, those who come back, those are going to be remade into the new Israel. They are going to be upheld with righteousness. They're going to be, you know, restored to positions of, of power in Israel and the rest they're being purged they're being removed so God is the agent of redemption that comes through judgment and this is where we see he is an ultimate good God that if he is casting judgment on something then uh, that is a good thing even if it is a sad thing and of course this is all possible because God leaves leaves the opening for repentance. He leaves a place for for grace for people to come back to. Now he talks about sacred trees and gardens and stuff like that. And we see that uh, like Asherah was often depicted with a sacred tree. So this is referring directly to idol worship and you know false god worship where they're worshiping other gods with these sacred trees and religious practices. So we see that this is what it's talking about. You will rue the day that you were you went to the wrong garden. Basically, uh, a lot of a lot of different deities like to come up with these very Eden-like places, and often are represented by very green and garden things and fertility and stuff like that. Where God is saying, you know, that is a false thing that is going to dry up. Uh, it's not planted in the truth 
And then it talks at the end there, the people who have cut themselves off from God will wither. Of course, since again, he is the, the source of all life. And then, of course, God will destroy both the leaders and their idols in this time. And uh, kind of a, a somber note to end on today. But it's just, just a regular reminder for us, you know, that even if we're maybe not doing everything we should, or we're not, we're not being as faithful to God as we should, that, you know, or you've messed up and we did something wrong, that even even if we do that, even if... You know, we feel like we've fallen away a little bit, or we've we slipped, backslid a little bit. That God's grace is so, so powerful that as long as we are ready to repent, and that we show that we're willing to accept God's sacrifice for us, that He will, you know, let us back in. He will let us come back into the fold. He He wants us to try and stay in right relationship with us. Uh, I think too much of this, you start acting, you start doing a yo-yo thing. And I feel like the Lord can, can convict you of that if you're doing too much of that, but there's going to be times where we're not perfect. We're not, we're not made in God's image. We let our emotions get the better of us. We, we make decisions, snap decisions that are not well thought out and don't take into account the things we should. And we need to, we need to be ready to, uh, you know, repent of these things to say sorry to the people we snap at or just to make amends where, wherever we can. And God's grace is powerful enough that if we realize the things we've done wrong and we do our best to correct them and we, we try and do better next time, that God always is happy to accept us back into fold, especially if we have given our lives to him and, and we have we have accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, especially the ones that maybe we just committed, and we repent of those, then we can sleep well knowing that we are still in God's good grace and that we are we are struggling in the way God wants us to struggle. We are working towards righteousness. We are working towards being perfect. We are we are struggling towards not salvation, but being the righteous people God wants us to be. And that that is all that can be asked of us in our perfect states because we're always going to trip and stumble and make mistakes and you know snap at people when we don't mean to or we shouldn't. And it's just something we gotta remember and being and having that humility to realize I make bad decisions and I've got to own up to them. That's that's the kind of mindset I think we, we really need to have as Christians today. And if that caught on and the whole world was acting more like that, then I think things would go a lot better in this world. Uh, too, too often we make a bad choice and then we stand on it, uh, being able to, to accept when we're wrong. I think that that is something this world needs today. So... Thank you for listening to the Revelation On Demand podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch podcasts from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture and receive no funding from any sources. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact us at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.